When you think about philosophy, you might think of names like Descartes, Kant, and Foucault. But maybe we should be expanding that list a little closer to home. And if you have kids, maybe you could be looking in your home. Kids, when they're young, have this sort of natural willingness to ask big questions and to think creatively and deeply about them. And I think lots of us lose that. Kids often break down the tough questions or problems with uncanny clarity. Life and death and love and language are just all mixed up before their adult brains can compartmentalize some of those things. It's magical. And today, we're getting into all of that, why we should talk to our children about philosophy. This is Stateside. I'm April Bear. Scott Hershevitz, a professor of philosophy at the University of Michigan, wrote a book about some experiences with his own children. The book came out in spring, and it's titled Nasty, Brutish, and Short, Adventures in Philosophy with My Kids. Scott Hershevitz, welcome to Stateside. Thanks so much. It's really terrific to be here. Why should we talk philosophy with our kids? And I, I mean that question at face value, but also... I mean, I'm a parent, and I kind of feel like it's kind of hard to get to them on, you know, what I want my kid to know about worldview as she's still figuring out how she sees the world. So I think there's a couple reasons that you want to talk to your kids about philosophical questions. The first, the most simple, the one that I hope will grab people the most, is it's fun. Your kids are really clever. They're filled with great questions about the world. They're trying to think them through, and they're going to surprise you with the really smart things that they think and the ideas that they have. And I think it'd be a shame as a parent to be missing out on that aspect of your kids. So my first pitch is always, it's fun to talk to your kids about really deep philosophical questions. I think is another really good reason, a kind of pragmatic reason. I always want to lead with the fun. But kids, when they're young, have this sort of natural willingness to ask big questions and to think creatively and deeply about them. And I think lots of us lose that as we get older. And one way we can help sustain that aspect of our kids is to signal that we value it and that we're interested in it and support them as thinkers. I wanted to ask you to read for us from the book a little bit. There's delightful stuff in the very beginning about how these things came up as bathtub conversations with your own kids. But there's a chapter later on about knowledge and sort of how we know what we know about the world. Do you mind reading a, a little bit from that? Sure, that'd be fun. I wonder if I'm dreaming my entire life, Rex said. He was four and already a fine philosopher. So the question didn't shock me. We were eating dinner, and the inquiry might have been a vegetable avoidance strategy. If it was, it worked. Rex knew his audience well. What a cool idea, Rex. A guy named Descartes wondered the same thing. Do you think you are dreaming? I don't know. Maybe. If you're dreaming, where do you think you really are right now? Maybe I'm in mommy's belly. Maybe I haven't been born yet. I wasn't buying it. Can babies that haven't been born yet talk, I asked? No. So do you think they dream about conversations like this? No, he admitted. But it wasn't hard to make Rex's argument more plausible. What if you're just dreaming today, I asked. What if you haven't woken up since you went to sleep last night? Would you be able to tell? No, he said, happy at the thought he might be hallucinating. We're all skeptical sometimes. A friend shares news, but you don't believe it. Or you start to doubt something you thought you knew. The hypothesis that Rex raised, that he was dreaming his entire life, 
is a recipe for radical skepticism, for doubting almost anything. Descartes was not the first dream skeptic. The idea appeared in antiquity, many times over. My favorite formulation comes from the Zhuangzi, a Taoist text written more than 2,000 years ago. Once, Zhuangzi dreamed he was a butterfly, a butterfly flitting and fluttering around, happy with himself and doing as he pleased. He didn't know he was Zhuangzi. Suddenly he woke up, and there he was, solid, unmistakable Zhuangzi. But he didn't know if he were Zhuangzi, who had dreamed he was a butterfly, or a butterfly who was dreaming he was Zhuangzi. I asked Hank, age eight, whether there was a way for Zhuangzi to figure it out. He thought hard and asked, is he tired? If not, then he just woke up, so he dreamed he was a butterfly. That's clever, but not clever enough. As Hank would later concede, you can dream that you've woken up feeling refreshed. He just didn't think it likely. And of course, it's not likely that you're dreaming your entire life, either as a baby in your mother's belly or as a butterfly. The reason to take dream skepticism seriously is not that it's a serious worry. It's what it shows us about the state of our knowledge and our relationship to the world around us. Did anybody do these kind of things with you when you were younger? No. In fact, early on in the book, I report my first philosophical thought, or at least the first philosophical thought. I remember I was sitting in my kindergarten class, and I started to wonder whether other people saw colors the same way I did. And I got so interested in the question that at the end of the day, I ran to tell my mother or to ask her. I said, I don't know whether red looks the way to you that it looks to me, right? Maybe you see red the way I see blue, and I see blue the way you see red. And she was totally flummoxed by the question, just confused. She kept telling me, you see just fine and pointing to red things and saying those are red. And I said, yeah, I know I call that red. And you do too, because you taught me those are red things. But what if it looks to me the way blue looks to you? Now, this is a very old philosophical problem known as the shifted color spectrum. It dates back at least uh, the English philosopher John Locke. My mother didn't have any of that background, and she really didn't appreciate that question. She kept telling me, you see just fine. Stop worrying about this. So as I, I say in the book, that was the first time that someone told me to stop doing philosophy. It was, de- <laughs> it was definitely not the last. Well, at what age did this begin with your boys, Rex and Hank? So around the time that they were a year old, I started to notice things that were philosophically interesting about them. I was really interested in the way that they were acquiring language and how they would learn a word in one context, but sort of intuit that it could be applied in another context or try it out. And so I just started to tell stories about the boys when I was teaching my philosophy classes. But around age two, certainly by three and four, they started to ask philosophical questions of their own. So we just heard Rex at age four asking whether he might be dreaming his entire life. And one of my favorite chapters in the book is a chapter about God, where Rex comes home from preschool. We sent him to the Jewish Community Center preschool. So he heard a lot about God there, and he wanted to know whether God was real. And I said, I said, what do you think? And he offered classic, me— Classic, classic philosopher dad response. Way to dodge it. I'm very yeah. proud. Well, you know, it definitely is a—it's is, partly a dodge and it's partly a strategy. Right. So what I want to do is make them think about things, make them offer me their ideas and arguments and not just tell them what to think. So when he says, is God real? And I reflect the question back and say, well, what do you think? I'm going to get that first impression from him. And actually, on that occasion, what I got is really maybe the most profound thing that he's ever said and and something that was so profound that I've been thinking about it, you know, for the last eight years since he said it. He said to me, I think that for real God is pretend 
and for pretend God is real. And I was just kind of stunned in the moment. It came out that cleanly, and I said, what do you mean? And he said, I think that God isn't real, but when we pretend he is. And as I said, I've been thinking about that ever since, and actually it really helped me understand myself and my relationship to religion better. I don't think of myself as somebody who believes in God, certainly not the God of the stories that we tell in synagogue, but nevertheless, lots of religious rituals are important to me um, and important in the life of our family. Rex is studying for his bar mitzvah right now, and we go to synagogue for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and we keep Passover. So there's lots of Jewish rituals in our lives, and I've always been puzzled about that disconnect in my own practice and belief. And Rex helped me see that even though I don't believe in God, I value these religious rituals as a kind of pretend play, which brings meaning to my life in much the same way that pretend play brings meaning to kids' lives. Parents are kind of notorious for overdoing it a bit when kids ask big questions. I'm thinking of a simple question from a preschooler about where do babies come from? Mm They might be asking the kind of question where what they really want to know is they come out of parents' bodies, you know, mm-hmm. women's women's bodies. And a lot of parents, uh, not naming any names here, but just possibly looking in the mirror, might launch into a very specific and correct biological explanation for how that process plays out, sure. along with some political asides that the kid is just kind of not really understanding. What's been your approach to sort of meet the boys where they are with their questions and maybe not, I guess, ask too much that's leading or, or hit them with stuff that they're not ready for? I think that's a great phrase, meet them where they are, and actually ask questions, ask follow-up questions to try and figure out what they're interested in. So I've actually got funny stories about our interactions when Rex found out he was having a younger brother. He was like lightning quick with the questions, right? Like when we said there's a baby in mommy's belly, he said, how did it get there? How's it going to get out? And can I see it? But but he was actually super satisfied with very simple answers for like, how did it get there? That's where babies start growing, made him perfectly happy. And how's it going to get out? The doctors have lots of tricks for taking babies out when it's time. Also satisfied him. Correct. You know, in, it's it's in correct the, information. It's, it's, yeah. yeah. So always correct information, but information that is at their level and responds. And actually, we had a really funny conversation, you know, fast forward several years when he did very clearly want a more accurate information about how babies were made. And so, you know, I'm, I was the, the child of a public health official who believes in, in accurate information. And so I always got accurate scientific information as a kid. And when I was clear, Rex was asking, he was in the bathtub, how are babies made? I gave him a very clinical explanation of how the process worked. And he responded with, wow, our bodies are weird. <laughs> and and I said, I said, yeah, do you have any more questions about it? And he said, when I turn my head to the side, it kind of feels like there's water in my ear. Um, and that was when I knew that I had satisfied all potential curiosity. So we addressed the water in the ear issue next. But when you're dealing with these philosophy questions, like as opposed to a science question, I think it's actually easier to meet the kids where they are, because you can say, hey, what do you mean? And what's worrisome? And often, what do you think about it? Because I think what a lot of parents don't realize is when the question has been asked, it's often not something that's just occurred to the kid. It's something that they've been thinking through and that they have ideas about. And if you just give them a window, they'll share their thoughts. So you can kind of find out where they are just by asking follow-up questions. We need to take a break. More in a minute. 
Support for the Stateside Podcast comes from Kalamazoo College, offering a personalized education that combines critical thinking, curiosity, and creativity. Committed to preparing students for meaningful careers that make a positive impact on the world. More at kzoo.edu. Support for Michigan Public's Stateside Podcast comes from Lake Trust Credit Union, working to empower financial well-being for Michigan consumers, businesses, and communities. Committed to financial solutions and advice to support people and families. More information at laketrust.org. Scott, you dedicate an entire delightful chapter to the subject of language, which I think anybody with verbal kids or who has had maybe an elementary schooler or middle schooler in the house is really going to appreciate. Could I ask you to read from the first part of it for us? You can, absolutely. Rex was alone in his room reading Neil deGrasse Tyson's Astrophysics for Young People in a Hurry. This was a departure from our longtime bedtime ritual, which involved one of us curled up in bed reading with Rex. He'd recently gone to overnight camp for the first time, and at nine, he was asserting some independence. But I couldn't let go of the ritual. So I was reading, too, on my own, in our guest room. Then Rex bounded in, looking excited. It says there's an experiment we can do. Should we try it? Sure, I said. He read aloud from the book. For a simple demonstration of gravity's constant pull, close this book, lift it a few inches off the nearest table, and let it go. That's gravity at work. If your book did not fall, please find your nearest astrophysicist and declare a cosmic emergency. Rex closed the book, held it out. Three, two, one. It fell to the floor. F**k, Rex said as he shook his fists. Then he looked at me with an impish grin. He was proud of himself, and I was proud of him too. This is the first time that that your your older son swore in your presence. Yeah, it was. Uh, we had been waiting for it for a long time. Actually, you know, I grew up in a house where curse words were a common form of communication. But Julie and I had kind of clamped down on our own use of bad language, and we were starting to worry about Rex a little bit. Actually, that maybe he, you know, wasn't going to be socially adept for not having picked up. <laughs> Uh, some of the words that that people in the real world use to communicate. So this is, look, I was kind of proud, not just that he had been bold enough to use the word, but it, but it was a, it was a perfectly placed expletive, suitable to the moment. And as I go on, uh, you know, the chapter is in the main about the question, why are some words bad? Which is something that always puzzled me as a kid. So what is it that puts some words off limits? But also to ask. Are they really off limits? In what circumstances? And I think that the norms here are much more complicated. In a than- funny way. I mean, you you address a lot of difficult topics in the book, race, religion. But to me, this chapter was kind of in the in the, the deepest, most dangerous waters of parenting mm-hmm. about appropriateness and inappropriateness. I mean, it's just it's kind of a hard concept. I mean, a lot of kids pick it up intuitively. You say this in this setting, but not in this setting. But it's a difficult concept to explain about what is okay and when it's okay. That's right. And, you know, a lot of that chapter is conversations with Rex where I say to him, is it ever okay to swear? And his first attempt is to say, well, you shouldn't swear in places that are civilized. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. What does that mean? You know, but eventually he comes up with a list. You know, I shouldn't swear at school. I shouldn't swear at synagogue. And it's an effort to sort of work out what's disrespectful, ultimately, about swearing in some places and not in others. The chapter came about because 
of a kind of low-level conflict I was having with my editor about the other chapters where, uh, you know, she kept returning my drafts saying that I said too much, saying that I swear too much. And she was right, you know, and the chapters often read better if she reined me in a little bit. But I thought, you're telling me I say too much, you, you're getting a chapter about that word. You know, there's a part of me that felt reading this like there was no way that your kids were going to escape these kinds of conversations because of your vocation. You attacked these subjects as a parent with the benefit of a lot of earned knowledge. Is there a more experiential approach to sort of getting kids thinking about philosophy if this is not a part of what you think and and talk about every day? So... One of the reasons I wrote this book is I want to help parents see this aspect of their kids and learn to engage it rather than just dismiss it as kids say the darndest things or to, you know, ignore the questions that they don't know the answer to. So I think of the book as part of my empowerment program for parents of, hey, read this. I'll teach you a little bit of philosophy that's going to help you recognize when your kids have these kinds of questions and maybe give you some background for thinking about it. But the book's also just full of resources. So there's a wonderful website called Teaching Children Philosophy that is run by the Prindle Institute for Ethics, and it's got teaching modules for lots of common picture books. And it explains some of the philosophical questions that come up in the course of those books, books like Nuffle Bunny or Don't Let the Pigeon Ride the Bus, books that are on lots of people's shelves already, and then provides really helpfully discussion questions you can ask your kids as you read. So if you've read those books a dozen times already and your kid still wants to read them, maybe hop onto Teaching Children Philosophy and come up with a cool question or two that you can ask while you read. To keep yourself from going crazy. Exactly. There was a strong vein of keeping yourself from going crazy as a parent throughout the book that I I really appreciated. Yeah, there's no question that sometimes in these conversations, I am trying to entertain myself as much as I'm trying to entertain them. (laughs) You know, this is not specific to anything in the book, but your scholarly practice is about ethics and philosophy, but also the law. Mm -hmm. And your legal experience includes... Some pretty deep stuff. You clerked for the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Mm -hmm. Justice Ginsburg. What's harder, explaining sort of big philosophical questions to kids, do you think, or explaining the politics of the moment and the friction that we see even in, you know, places like the Supreme Court at this moment? I definitely find it harder to explain the state of the world and our politics, in part because it's really challenging to communicate to kids that not everybody is well-intentioned, that not everybody is acting in good faith. That's hard for them to wrap their heads around. And that's true in many different places in our society. So in the book, I write a little bit about how puzzled Hank was when he learned that maybe the police aren't always the good guys. Maybe they're doing bad things. He learned that in connection with the protests in Ferguson about police brutality, police violence, and, uh, you know, certainly having conversations with them about the January 6th attack on the Capitol, I find that really difficult. You know, I, I don't draw the sharp distinction that maybe the question presupposes between those conversations, conversations about the state of our world and these more philosophical conversations, because it's an opportunity to sort of connect the two. One is implicit in the other. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So and then to ask them, well, what are fair ways of making decisions? Um, why is democracy important? I want to I take what's happening in the world and then do a little philosophy about it and, you know, make sure that my kids grow up committed to democracy. Thank you so much, Scott. This was really fun. Thanks so much for having me. 
That's the Stateside Podcast. I'm April Bear. You can find full Stateside episodes at michiganradio.org. Today's podcast was produced by Rachel Ishikawa. Other producers on our show are Mike Blank, Ronia Kabansag, Mercedes Mejia, and April Van Buren. Ronia Kabansag edited today's show. Our executive producer is Laura Weber Davis. Music for the podcast comes from Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Rebecca Williams. I'm Lester Graham. We've been working on a big project about Great Lakes birds called the Bird Connection. It will look at ducks and trumpeter swans. Egrets and herons. And piping plovers. Yes! We'll discuss what we've discovered at a Michigan Public Issues and Ale event. Including how some problems for birds are problems for people. It's at Arbor Brewing Company in Ypsilanti the evening of May 21st at 7. You can register at michiganpublic.org.